0: The subject tonight, understanding natural law. I want to move through a series of uh, Roman numerals in our outline tonight. As you see on the board next to me, uh, we want to spend a moment defining natural law and to give some biblical evidence after that for what we mean. Because the phrase itself is not found in the Bible. It's a way of trying to talk about what I think there's biblical evidence for. That'll be followed by things outside the Bible that suggest or are clues toward what we call natural law, what we would consider non-biblical evidence. That's not unbiblical evidence. It's non-biblical evidence. Not contradicting the Bible, but it's outside the Bible. Uh, then we want to deal with concerns that I hope to answer, just a few of them, about the subject of natural law when Christians have thought about it from time to time. And then fifth... Natural law according to church history. We're not the first to broach thinking and and talking about such a subject. It's rooted deeply in church history where theologians have written about such revelation in their writings and teachings. And then lastly, sixthly, uh, the importance of natural law. And I want to lay out several reasons why we could apply this concept in practical ways, takeaways, Uh, for our own Christian living and lives as earthly citizens. Understanding natural law, let's begin with a definition. And in defining this, uh, you can look on the right side of the board where I've laid out a definition and made some grammatical layout adjustments so that it doesn't just look like a sentence. It's broken into some hopefully clearer parts. And then I want to make some distinctions about it. By natural law, I'm saying it refers to God's revelation of moral duties that are discernible from human conscience and the created order, and that orient God's image bearers toward human flourishing. That is a thick definition. I recognize that. Natural law refers to God's revelation of moral duties that are discernible from human conscience and the created order, and that orient God's image bearers toward human flourishing. Here's what I don't mean by natural law. Natural law is not, in this case, about laws of nature. You think about laws of nature like gravity or entropy or things that physicists would observe and they'd say, here's the first law of this or the second law of that. I don't mean laws operating within nature where scientists and physicists are trying to make uh, important discerning um, and discoveries and and teachings about. Not laws of nature. Natural law is not what I mean. uh, uh, We don't mean by natural law, the idea of the laws of nature. Natural law is also not naturalism. Naturalism, though having the word natural in it, naturalism is a philosophy that is essentially saying the material world is all there is to reality. We live in a closed system. Naturalism is anti-supernatural. There's not a God who has made things and intervenes in the world he has made. Uh, There's not a a supernatural origin or rescue and redemption or life to come. Naturalism is limited to the things that we can see with our senses and what they would imagine scientific uh, method would be able to deduce. Natural law is not naturalism and it is not about the laws of nature. As one person defined it, it refers to the law of God made known in the created order. So when I'm thinking about the law of God, we're not thinking about the ceremonial laws. We're not thinking about certain civil and judicial penalties that we see in some of the fine print in uh, Leviticus and Numbers. We're thinking about something more obvious. More obvious to the eyes and senses and reasoning of God's image bearers. God's revelation in his world, is in two big categories. General revelation and special revelation. God makes himself known in general revelation and special revelation. Tonight, I don't want to talk about special revelation primarily, though we will talk about the Bible and from the Bible. I want to focus with the subject of natural law on general revelation. So at the bottom of the board here, I'm focusing on what theologians have sometimes called the book of nature versus the book of Scripture. So that God reveals himself in two books. The book of Scripture, special revelation, but also the book of nature that God as image bearers are able to see and discern and reason morally, though imperfectly in a fallen world. God's natural or general revelation is vouched in uh, certain Old Testament texts like Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. It is a proclamation that something of God's greatness and glory is evident in creation, so that nature has something to teach. So that natural revelation, being this book of nature, this big subject, we could say within that, little subheading here, natural theology would be one's study of and reflection on the book of nature. We are thinking about God's natural world. We're thinking about His design and order in creation. And we are reasoning. We're applying our thinking. We're doing experiments. We're making discoveries. We're engaging in reflection on and inevitably engaging in theological and philosophical conclusions about the world. Within that... So, general revelation upon which we reflect with natural theology, there is a subject called natural law. And it focuses on the moral will of God that is revealed by God in the human conscience and created order and that orients image bearers toward human flourishing. I'm interested in this definition and made those distinctions, I hope, to help us keep it clear. By natural law, I'm talking about a subject within the book of nature. And yet, nevertheless, what theologians throughout church history have recognized is indeed genuine revelation to affirm and receive. Think about biblical evidence with me for a moment. So we're going to turn to some special revelation. But here's what I want us to notice. The special revelation is going to talk about natural law. So consider, for instance, Acts 14, where Paul is speaking to Gentiles in Lystra And in Acts 14, he comes upon them engaging in blasphemous and idolatrous activities. And he says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news, Paul says, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them? In past generations, he allowed nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness. Now, Paul's insisting on something here that in the natural world, the pagans have not been left without a divine witness. Paul says, God did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons. Satisfying your hearts with food and gladness, they have benefited from the living God. And yet, in receiving the benefits from living in the world God has made, they have nevertheless, in their darkened understanding, turned to idolatry. But he pleads with them to say that we are men of like nature with you. You should turn from vain things and go to the living God. In Acts 17, Paul is in Athens, once again speaking to Gentiles. And he's speaking to Gentiles in Acts 17, and beginning in verse 29, he says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, by a man whom he has appointed. And he's uh, given assurance to all by raising that man from the dead. That he is appealing to them that they not think of the divine being as something that could be of stone or gold or silver. In Romans 1, once again Paul writing to the Romans. He says in Romans 1.19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. And in Romans 1, the context is the wicked rebels who in their idolatry and immorality have turned from God. But I want you to listen to what Paul says they know. He says, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So... They are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But therein they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Later in Romans 1 verses 26 and 27, he says, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. One more quotation from Romans. This is from chapter two, in Romans two fourteen. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, and I think by that he means the law of Moses, when they do not have the law but by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. In Romans two fourteen and 15, Paul there is speaking about the law written on the heart. That is what natural law is about. Natural law is the law that Paul says is written on the heart. That these Gentiles are without excuse. They can't say, well, we're not in the Sinai covenant. It is not relevant whether they were in the Sinai covenant, as if that's the only basis upon which God would judge them. Instead, they have the law of God written upon their hearts. There is a moral accountability and responsibility and duties that they have outside the New Testament, consider the biblical evidence from the Old Testament. I mentioned Psalm 19 a moment ago, and that is uh, evidently a revelation of God's power and glory in nature. But in the Old Testament narratives, and in the Old Testament prophets, consider that Gentiles are indicted for abominations that God will judge. Upon what basis does God judge non-Israelites who are not in a Sinai covenant? And the answer is the moral law written upon their hearts, which they have breached in their folly and idolatry. Consider in Exodus chapter one, no one would look at Pharaoh saying to kill the male Hebrew babies to say, well, you know, we can't really say whether Pharaoh was right or wrong there or whether he should be judged by God. After all, he's not an Israelite. and He's not in the Sinai covenant. No, what Pharaoh did was wrong and the consciences of image bearers know that Pharaoh's activity is wrong and he's wrong as a non-Israelite and he's wrong as someone not in a Sinai covenant. And the same indictments of different acts of moral uh, deviancy appear in the prophetic oracles against the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Moabites, the Canaanites, against Sodom and Gomorrah. If you peruse the narratives of the Old Testament and the prophetic oracles, here's what you come to conclude. God is judge of all the earth. And when he is judge of all the earth with his total and sovereign jurisdiction over all nations and peoples, on what basis does he judge them? And the answer is the law of God written upon their hearts is demonstrated as something they've rebelled against and therefore against God. When you look at the different examples of their sins, you read in the oracles, the injustices and acts of uh, outrage that in abominations that have been performed by these nations, these nations are wrong, not because they are in the New Covenant, not because they're in the Sinai Covenant. They are breaking the law of God written upon their hearts. A universal reality endowed upon God's image bearers. So biblical evidence is strong for this notion of natural law in the Old and New Testaments. To the third part tonight, non-biblical evidence. And I, I, I want to unpack here four Uh, No, five. Five points of non-biblical evidence for natural law. And natural law, again, is about looking in creation and being able to deduce things. The first element of non-biblical evidence is looking at what we can call the nature of things. The nature of things. Being people with intellect and reason, we can look at an object and begin to deduce its purpose. We can look at design and offer things that it might be used for. We can connect the existence of something with an asserted purpose for it. You could do this with tools, for instance. If you walk through a department store, you would recognize that given the certain shape and design and form of certain things, there would be things that tool would be useful for that it would not apply in other cases. Um, Even if you like hammers, you can't use a hammer on everything, okay? Like you you recognize that there are certain tools and designs and forms that are connected to certain uh, created purposes. Discerning what a thing is helps Helps us discern what it ought to do. This general principle of recognizing the existence of something and purpose for it helps us realize how rebelling against reality is utter foolishness And destructive for the human condition. As one writer put it, although this natural order is fallen and under a divine curse, it remains meaningful and purposeful. So when we reject the purpose and design of God for his people and human flourishing, foolishness and destructiveness would no doubt result down that path. It would be, in other words, a rebellion against reality to say, given whatever we can discern a thing could be used for, we're going to do what we want and how we want to do it and for as long as we very well please. Instead, we should see that non-biblical evidence for people with reason and intellect, which sets us apart from the animal world, we are image bearers and we see that there can be a nature to things. A design and purpose that we can deduce. Can we conclude this flawlessly about all things given our corrupted minds in thinking in God's world? Surely we make errors. It is to say in principle, there is a nature of things that can help us deduce purpose from design. Uh, Human conscience is non-biblical evidence number two. The human conscience, which of course special revelation speaks to, but think for a moment about people who do not believe the Bible. who who reject special revelation in the Scriptures and in the Lord Jesus. There is a helpfulness here in the human conscience that is a faculty of moral reasoning. People have instincts about what is right and what is wrong. We've thought a lot about the conscience recently on Sunday mornings, haven't we? Especially from 1 Timothy 1.19. We need a good conscience. In a fallen world, our conscience can be manipulated and corrupted and dulled and seared. But the good conscience that we desire as image bearers, develops as the spirit works through the word over time. Nevertheless, there is a unanimous principle in the human condition and across history that people have instincts about right and wrong. This is a major theme in C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, and specifically in its opening chapters. Lewis gives this example. Quarreling with someone means trying to show that the other man is in the wrong. And there would be no sense in trying to do that unless you and he had some sort of agreement as to what right and wrong are. Just as there would be no sense in saying a footballer had committed a foul unless there was some agreement about the rules of football. Lewis elsewhere says, Whenever you find a man who doesn't believe in a real right and wrong, you'll find the same man going back on this a moment later. He may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one to him, he'll be complaining, that's not fair, before you can say Jack Robinson. So Lewis's point is, even if people were to deny that they have instincts about right and wrong, our human experience bears out in a thousand anecdotes that we could list easily about how it overflows from the human mouth about issues of fairness and rightness and wrongness. There was a panel discussion one time involving R.C. Sproul. And a moderator asked R.C. Sproul a question from a conference attender about this attender's concern for his unbelieving brother And this attender was asking about how I can talk to my unbelieving brother about what is wrong and about what is sinful. And Sproul said, steal his wallet. That's what you need to do. Steal his wallet. And I bet the issues of right and wrong will come up pretty quickly. Now, of course, that got a big laugh from the audience and rightly so. But at the same time, Sproul was not just being cheeky about it. He was truly saying that person... He, he might say, well, I don't believe in the idea of sin or I reject the idea of, of wrongdoing in an objective sense. Yeah, steal his wallet and see how quickly he uh, changes his position. In other words, the point is... In our human interactions, the human conscience is pricked over and over again. And you might say, well, human history is littered with people who've done all sorts of evil. Indeed, against their conscience or according to a seared conscience. It doesn't disprove the reality of a conscience and a moral reasoning and barometer. It's simply that in a fallen world, our human conscience is not sufficient and is very vulnerable to the corruption of an evil age. Third, non-Christian philosophers permeate history and philosophy of those who reflect on the human condition and conclude about a real right and a real wrong and a real moral reasoning to engage in people like Plato and Aristotle and Cicero who write about human virtue and excellence fourth societal law codes societal law codes that exist throughout the world Babylonian law codes Egyptian law codes Roman law codes. One writer puts it this way. The similarities between the law of Moses and other legal documents of Israel's neighbor, uh, neighbors in the ancient Near East is an interesting thing to observe. Because the law of Moses is not the earliest ancient Near Eastern document of laws. There are preceding laws and contemporaneous laws and subsequent laws to the period of Moses and his generation of Israelites where civilizations put into law and policy things that they would accept and things that they would not. Now, we might look at those law codes and say, well, they could certainly have improved it if they would have outlawed this or if they would have encouraged more, more of this. Okay, certainly fair point. It is to say, nevertheless, across civilizations, what do you have emerging in societies through policies and within governing authorities? Issues about what is acceptable and what is not. Some sort of standard that is being put forward. Throughout human history it is the case. C.S. Lewis says, If anyone will take the trouble to compare the moral teaching of the ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, Hindus, Chinese, Greeks, and Romans, what will really strike him will be how very alike they are to each other. Very similar expectations of what they would have wanted to aspire to. Did they fall short of it? Did they fail to implement all the particular things that would certainly facilitate human flourishing? No doubt many concerns could be raised. Lewis's point stands upon those who, for those who would still take the trouble, he says, to compare moral teachings across these civilizations. So, in this fourth point, under non biblical evidence, societal law codes seem to suggest that human beings have a bent toward moral reasoning in some way. And then, fifth and finally, long term studies. Long term studies that through sociological and anthropological efforts, people in all sorts of organizations, people who are Christians and non-Christians, engage in decades-long studies looking at different moral impacts for decisions that society makes. I just want to give you one example. We find an example, this writer says, about natural penalties in breaking moral precepts When you think about the idea of the precept of confining sex to marriage, he says an immediate consequence of the violation of this results in impact with individuals and families and then generational impact that follows. He says many are the long-term consequences of the violation of sexual ethics. Poverty, adolescent violence, child abuse, and the List continues statistically, study upon study, that confirms that when you take one example of saying, let's say we we look at what would be good for individuals and for a family and say, but my desires and my lusts are going to lead me this or that. It tells us that violating what our consciences would know would be best and wisest, violating that creates chaos and doesn't facilitate peace, harmony, and well-being. And of course, many examples exist. Um, I want to go to the fourth point, answering concerns about natural law. I want to raise four concerns. Concern number one, isn't the phrase natural law absent in Scripture? This is a concern raised from time to time by those who are very concerned about using terms that aren't found in Explicitly in the Bible, they'd say, Now, why should we teach this kind of thing? It's not said in the Bible, this idea of natural law. It is true that the phrase is not present. The phrase natural law describes the series of concepts and teachings that are in the Bible. The similar analogy I would give you is with the word Trinity, a word not found in the biblical text, but a word used by believers trying to describe and summarize what we believe the text is teaching. The phrase natural law has been used by theologians throughout church history to describe what we believe the text is teaching about our human development and faculty of moral reasoning. Concern number two. Since we have the Bible, isn't natural law irrelevant? This is a good question. Since we have the Bible, isn't natural law irrelevant? Irrelevant, And the impulse here would likely be tied to something like sola scriptura. The Bible is our final authority. But as sola scriptura is described by those in the post-Reformation era, sola scriptura is rightly described as the final authority the Bible is in all matters of faith and practice, but not the only means by which God has revealed himself. In fact, the Bible tells us that the Bible is not the only place God has revealed himself. So those who would hold firmly to the Bible alone and reject natural revelation end up rejecting what the Bible itself says, Says don't, don't they? Sola Scriptura does not mean natural revelation is unnecessary. To claim such, as a writer says, would be absurd because Scripture presumes we know all sorts of things about the world in which we live. And I simply want to illustrate this point with the book of Proverbs. Doesn't the book of Proverbs draw many lessons by observing the way the world typically works? Not relying on special revelation from heaven and a thus saith the Lord, but rather Solomon saying to his son, Son, consider the ant. Look at the ant in Proverbs 6. Look at how the ant works. how How the ant labors and stores up. Consider the ant. An example from the natural world. A writer says that none of these analogies or illustrations would make any sense if the world were not filled with meaning, purpose, and order. Natural law is something we can affirm because in our moral reasoning, we can rightly discern God has ordered and filled his world with design. Things that we can observe and discern to live in a flourishing way. Concern number three. Are you saying people can be saved by natural law? This is a a third concern and an understandable concern because we speak about scriptural revelation as that which reveals God's redemptive plan for mankind. You don't get the redemptive plan looking into the sky with a telescope. You don't see that in the stars. You can't conclude the revelation of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by looking at leaves and trees and grass and nature. You don't conclude special revelation doctrinal items through general revelation. And so someone might say, well, are you saying then with emphasizing natural law that this is a, people can be saved by this? No one can be saved by natural law. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the special revelation and his redemptive plan for sinners is the only means of salvation. Natural law, however, is sufficient as a basis of judgment. So insufficient to save... Fully sufficient as a basis for divine judgment. And we have to see the usefulness here then in thinking about the natural law as believers. Bringing us to the fourth question. Doesn't sin prevent unbelievers from perceiving the natural law? Doesn't sin prevent unbelievers from perceiving the natural law? Now we might say on the the face of it, yes, in coming to know Christ... There is an illuminating work of the Spirit as we read His Word and see our world differently because of regeneration. So, we are not saying that unbelievers reason their way into the new birth. We are saying, however, that unbelievers in their fallen state have not had their conscience completely erased. Though effaced, not erased. That's not original with me, but it is a phrasing that I have found super helpful to describe the situation of the corruptive power of sin on the conscience, effaced, but not erased. God's image bearers, as I mentioned even earlier, like Aristotle or Cicero or Plato, have written much about moral reasoning and virtue and excellence. Clearly, sin does not prevent unbelievers from thinking about these things. Sinners, though certainly resist what they may know deep down to be true. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 14 one says Romans one tells us that in their folly, in their futile thinking, they suppressed the knowledge of God. God had made himself known, but they looked at what he had made known and they ignored it. They rationalized it. They explained it away in some way. One writer puts it this way, the depth and deception of sin does indeed affect human beings' ability to understand natural law and put it into practice. Because not only can we not know that we know something, we can suppress what we know. This is to say that in our human conscience, we can have a seared conscience, a dulled conscience, we can have a manipulated conscience, but it does not deny the reality of natural law even if sin inhibits unbelievers from functioning fully with a moral conscience. Let's go to point number five here, natural law according to church history. Natural law according to church history is a section in our talk tonight trying to illustrate that this is not a new idea. You find, rather, people appealing to general revelation, thinking in terms of natural theology of what we can discern from creation about God's power, His divine nature, and even attributes of God as well as natural law and moral reasoning, you find such appeals and reflections on general revelation in the writings of the early church fathers. Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Athanasius, Gregory Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa, Augustine. The medieval period, figures like Thomas Aquinas, John Duns Scotus, William of Ockham. In the Reformation period, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Thomas Cranmer, William Tyndale. Francis Turretin. Among the Puritans, William Perkins, William Ames, Richard Sibbes, Stephen Charnock, the names are so lengthy. I want to give you a couple quotes here. Martin Luther believed in Romans 2, 14 and 15, when the law was being written upon the heart, according to Paul's words about the pagan Gentiles, Luther believed this was a reference to natural law. And Luther said, you can summarize the natural law in the Ten Commandments. That that's what they are. God's commands about loving him and loving neighbor. Luther says, you know what you see when you look at the Ten Commandments? The moral law of God. The violations of which lead to idolatry. Violations within the first first four commandments. And sins against neighbor commands five through ten. And Luther says, well, that's the natural law, isn't it? And everybody ought to obey this. Everybody ought to obey in the written law upon their hearts these things which the Israelites had summarized for them in the Ten Commandments. John Calvin said in the 1500s that Romans 2, 14 and 15 was God putting his moral law on human consciences and that this was basically the precepts of the Ten Commandments. Calvin thought the same thing. He believed the natural law should be the standard for all human civil law that followed. Here's a quote from John Calvin in his Institutes. The Institutes of Christian Religion, Calvin says, It is a fact that the law of God, which we call the moral law, is nothing less than a testimony of the natural law and that conscience which God has engraved upon the minds of men. There have been some who have uh, accused advocates of natural law of ignoring church history and not being reformed in their theology. I think that is a statement made, unfortunately, out of historical ignorance. Because when you survey the early church fathers, the medieval theologians, the Reformation writers, and the Puritans, they emphasized general revelation, engaged in natural theology in their sermons, writings, and books, and certainly appeals to moral reasoning and the conscience of natural law. It is the majority traditional position Throughout church history, in the immediate generation after the apostles up to the present day, the majority and traditional position that God speaks through human conscience and the created order about moral duties that we have. Which takes us to the last part. The importance of the natural law. I want to mention six reasons the natural law is important. Six reasons the natural law is important. Number one, natural law is important because it establishes the the righteous judgment of God. Natural law establishes the righteous judgment of God. People are without excuse. This is the teaching of the Apostle Paul, commissioned by the Lord Jesus... Inspired by the Holy Spirit in his writings to instruct the church to build up their faith and to orient them in wisdom about how to think about the world. Paul's conclusion in Romans 1 is that people are without excuse because the law written on their hearts, which he brings up in Romans 2, they have egregiously breached. He looks at the idolatry and he looks at the injustices and unrighteousness and he says the moral law has been violated. They are ignoring what their conscience would suggest to them about right worship and who God should be and would be. Natural law then establishes the righteous judgment of God because as one writer put it, it's it's necessary that all people genuinely understand their responsibilities toward God. He would not be just if he judged people for for, uh, actions that they had no way of knowing were wrong. So, natural law says... They do know that these things are wrong. Number two, the importance of the natural law. It exists because natural law is a point of evangelistic contact. The natural law is a point of evangelistic contact. One of those who has made this... Uh, very much a a viral sensation is an example of Ray Comfort's ministry in the way of the master where he uses the Ten Commandments in a series of questions for people asking that if the Bible has laid out these commands that reveal our moral duties if you look at it like a mirror have you violated these commandments and over and over again he gets people to admit that if this was the standard of moral law and expectation they would fall short of the standard of God and be worthy of judgment. The natural law is a point of evangelistic contact because while people would not initially come into our conversations about Jesus with a commitment to the special revelation, they all have a conscience. They all have a conscience. The Apostle Paul makes this a point even in his ministry to Gentiles in the book of Acts. One writer puts it this way, natural law is a crucial foundation for the gospel because it exposes the sin of all people particularly those who don't have the Mosaic law. So if the Jews who have the law of Moses hear about the crucified Christ and they recognize that no one can be saved by the works of the law, they needed the crucified risen Messiah. Well, what do you say to the Gentiles as their need to be saved? Are they guilty? And if so, of what? They haven't broken the ceremonial and civil laws of Moses. They're not in the Sinai covenant. What is it that indicts the image bearers of God and the answer is the natural law the moral law of God written upon the heart the natural law is important then secondly here because it is a point of evangelistic contact number three natural law is important because it helps establish human rights and dignity Natural law is important because it establishes human rights and dignity. Let's put it this way. In the words of one of the characters in the Brothers Karamazov, written by Dostoevsky, without God in the future life, everything is permitted. One can do anything. And he's right. Because on what basis would you be able to reason a genuine right and wrong within a civilization and among cultures? Frederick Nietzsche saw the implications of this. He said, without God, and I quote, there are no moral facts whatsoever. Other atheists like David Hume, as an example, agreed that if you take to its full conclusion what it is to reject an objective standard of right and wrong, you have in the end only your preference. And why should anybody go according to what you prefer? In the end, might makes right. The majority rules, whatever their preferences and likenesses have to be. And you say, well, do people really say this? Well, I was listening to a TED Talk yesterday that came across social media by a professor of history at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem named Yuval Harari. And Yuval Harari said that human rights are fictional. We've made them up. And he went on to say, we've made them up just like God and heaven." as a story to tell ourselves. And he said, this story of human rights might make you feel better, it might make you feel more comfortable, but it's no more true than any other fictional story people tell themselves. Natural law helps establish human rights and dignity. The reason people matter from the smallest to the tallest and the oldest, no matter what country or ethnicity, The reason people matter is because there is a God who has endowed his image bearers with dignity and reasoning to function in his world. We're not like the animals. If you think about a series of issues, of ethical issues like working and getting paid, well, natural law would say that the reason you ought to be paid for your work is because you have a right to the fruits of your labor. And for someone to steal that from you, Or to deny an agreement made with you is wrong. They shouldn't do that. They shouldn't do that no matter where they live. No matter when they live. No matter who it involves. Think about the murder of the unborn. Or the issue of euthanasia. Or the issue of racism. Or the issue of same-sex marriage. When you think about the appeal to human design and dignity... We have a number of very relevant cultural issues and ethical matters right now that are live. And you know what? Natural law has something to say to this. Not just the special revelation of Scripture, but natural law. Natural law would speak to the issue of those who are transgender and demanding to have the same bathrooms as girls or play the same sports as those of the opposite sex. You know, natural law has something to say to this. Natural law would say something to those who would want to inject young people with hormone and chemical changes because they believe or have been taught that they could change their sex from a man to a woman through these various injections. Natural law looks at the human conscience and the order and design of us as human beings and has something to say. So if we are in conversations with people about ethical issues, which we will be all the time in this world, in the 2024 culture we're in for sure, someone might say, well, I hear that you're a Christian, but I don't believe in the Bible. Okay, that's not the only ground from which we make claims. God reveals himself in the book of Scripture and in the book of nature. Let's think about human design and sexuality. And let's think about the way human design and the created order could suggest Uh, input into these ethical issues now I know that this third way of the importance of the natural law could be a lengthy series of talks so I'm glossing over this for the sake of just completing the list here but natural law helps establish human rights and dignity that you don't deserve to have your life taken from you as an innocent person that unlawful treatment of you um, in that way is wrong you don't deserve to be discriminated against because of the color of your skin When we think about even decades ago, people were saying, if you're black, you have to use this water fountain. If you're white, you have to use this water fountain. You have to use this door if if your skin color is this. That is a violation of natural law. So both ancient, recent past, and present problems have something that can be um, spoken into it through the natural law. Of the moral conscience and reasoning of image bearers. Number five. No, number four. Natural law helps societies produce laws and pursue justice. Natural law helps societies produce laws and pursue justice. We live as Christians among people who are not Christians. Okay, you think, I didn't come here tonight for that. That's very obvious, right? So natural law, what does natural law do? It helps societies where there are Christians and non-Christians living together, produce laws and pursue justice. We're not saying that in order to be a citizen of the United States, somebody has to be a Christian. But there are laws and policies in societies that we hope will aim toward a particular end. One writer puts it this way, there is more to Christians' interaction with their unbelieving neighbors than just evangelizing them. Since we share neighborhoods, workplaces, governments, and much else, we have a keen interest in how they live, how well they work, how they evaluate what is just. Human laws are grounded, we hope, in reasoning. Every moral law is connected to some sort of claim. It is sometimes said that you cannot legislate morality. The problem with that is it is a myth because every law is connected to some sort of moral claim or duty or obligation that you feel like should be imposed or practiced. Human laws are grounded in reasoning. And natural law, as one writer put it, is the moral standard Christians and non-Christians share. So we're not expecting our fellow citizens to become Christians. We would love for them to. We want to evangelize them and share the Lord Jesus with them. But as we live in an earthly citizenship collectively as a society, we pursue the common good. And the common good is reflected in natural law. Human laws can exceed natural law. Natural law doesn't say anything about laws for stop signs and stoplights. For instance, but when human laws exceed natural law, the hope is that their aim is still toward what natural law would aim at itself. Natural law, such as in the latter part of the Ten Commandments, aims at love of neighbor. Well, one of the reasons I want to obey stop signs isn't because that's the natural law but when I stop so that I don't ram into my neighbor's car, that helps me love that person. In other words, when I I might say, well, I don't like this traffic law or this stop sign or this speed limit. But you start to think about the implications if as a society we failed to care about things that did make some practical sense about how to cooperate and collectively live together. And that's just one small example, but it's to say, Our common good is reflected in natural law. When human laws exceed natural law, we hope that they still aim toward the same good natural law does. Number five, natural law facilitates human flourishing. This is connected to number four, which is about helping societies produce laws and pursue justice. Natural law, number five, facilitates human flourishing. Living against reality hurts people. Producing policies and legislating things that are against the created order hurts people. It does not achieve the common good, and it will inhibit human flourishing. That is because this is God's world. And the moral duties that are reflected in our human conscience in the creation order are what orient God's image bearers to human flourishing. So the violation of natural law gets in the way of human flourishing. That's what my claim is. Number five here, natural law facilitates human flourishing. So as Christians, one of the things we want to think about, as uh, uh, one writer puts it, Christians rightly look for ways to promote what is good and just in their communities. Because we don't want to hurt people. We don't want to inhibit human flourishing. We don't want anything to corrode when it comes to the achievement or pursuit of the common good. We want to pursue the common good because we want to love our neighbor. But here's the truth And it bears out by, I think, special revelation and not only natural revelation. I am not loving my neighbor if I'm pursuing what violates natural law. Even if my neighbor insists they would feel loved if I did. Because individual conscience can be misguided, deceived, seared. Rather, the collective moral reasoning and common good is a faithful, reliable guide, biblically and historically, for the love of neighbor. Number six, and finally. Natural law directs Christians in wisdom and love. We think here about John Calvin's uses of the law a threefold use of the law he spoke of how the law is helpful to restrain wickedness in society how the law convicts sinners of their guilt and their need for a savior but a third use of the law calvin says is to guide christians The law is not a means of our salvation. We go to the cross and then the Lord Jesus, by the new covenant work, has written his law, his new covenant law, if you will, upon our hearts where we live out genuine obedience unto God as a saved, regenerate people united to Christ. The law of God directs us in wisdom as Christians. It's useful in society and unbelieving uh, in the minds of unbelievers But natural law is especially helpful when we think about the Ten Commandments in the Christian life. The Ten Commandments are not irrelevant when you become a Christian. If someone were to say, do you fall short of these things and therefore you need to come to Christ? Well, yeah, I mean, you could see how that could convict your conscience. But we don't then set aside those moral laws when we become Christians. We recognize that by the implanting of the Holy Spirit's power and word upon our hearts... We live out the Christian life guided by the wisdom of the word that includes the moral law. So the natural law or moral law directs Christians in wisdom and in love. Now the topic tonight um, is so foundational in in one sense when it comes to the gospel and neighbor love. We want to think about what is best for people. What's going to be good collectively for a society? What should we pursue and what should we practice and what should we seek to uh, facilitate with policies This natural law discussion is relevant in a host of ways. I've tried to lay out a a series of them. Now, it is possible that one of these elements that I'm unpacking or one of the uh, scriptural proofs or one of the arguments philosophically that I'm arguing, you think, I don't know if I'm I'm with that yet. I'm still thinking through that. And that's fine. This is is a, a heavy subject. It's an important subject. So the key is, as Christians, being tuned in to what theologians throughout the ages have written and thought about. And that is this aspect of natural revelation and theology. And with natural law, we're being introduced to a very important subject that can help orient us in many helpful ways in conversations with our neighbor. I think it can help facilitate healthy civil conversations on very important matters. We would love if everybody would come to the same common ground on issues regarding biblical authority from the outset. The reality, though, is, and you know this and I know this, in our conversations with people who don't profess Christ, simply appealing to special revelation might not get us very far at all. And you say, but aren't we dependent on the work of the Spirit in their hearts? Absolutely. I'm simply saying God's revelation is not only in the book of Scripture, but also in the book of nature. As we attend to the book of nature, we can find ourselves helped and encouraged in our moral reasoning and I think with great encouragement and instruction and wisdom to give to our fellow neighbor in return. All with the goal, my friends, of loving God and loving neighbor for which we were created to do. Let's pray.